Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. They say you're entitled to your own opinion, just not your own facts. Imagine a world that considers knowledge to be elitist. A world in which, for example, it's not medical knowledge, but a free-for-all opinion market on Twitter that determines whether a newly emergent strain of avian flu is really contagious to humans. This dystopian future is still just that, a possible future. However, there are signs that public discourse is evolving in this direction. Terms like post-truth and fake news, largely unknown until 2016, have exploded into the media and public discourse. Professor Stephen Lewandowski is a cognitive scientist and chair of cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol. His work explores the implications of the growing abundance of misinformation in the public sphere, how it influences people and how to counter it. He was recently invited to the University of Melbourne to give a free public lecture entitled Post-Truth Politics, Democratisation of Information or Gateway to Authoritarianism. His most recent research examines the potential conflict between human cognition and the physics of the global climate, which has led him into research in climate science and climate modelling. Our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath, sat down for a chat with Stephen to discuss his work that examines people's memory, decision-making and knowledge structures, with a particular emphasis on how people update information in memory. Professor Stephen, how do you describe what you do when you meet people? Well, I study fake news and misinformation. I'm concerned with how people respond to information that turns out not to be true later on. And so I'm fascinated by how people update their memories and their beliefs. How do you go about studying that? Because it seems like a complex thing, the human memory. Yes, it is complex, but we actually do understand it quite well, uh, at least in broad strokes. We have a fairly good understanding of it, and we... Um, gather that understanding by running experiments. So we take people into the laboratory or we recruit them online increasingly these days. We present them with information to memorize. In my particular case, what I then do is I correct some of the information that I present to participants because I'm interested in how they respond to that. And then sometime later, I'm asking them questions about what they've read or what they've heard. And I then find under most circumstances that people continue to rely on misinformation, even if I tell them that it was false, and even if they acknowledge that they've received the correction. So people will say, oh, yeah, I know you told me that's false. But then when I ask them to draw inferences about the information, they still use it. So it's quite difficult for humans to change their mind once it's set. Yes, it is difficult because fundamentally when we listen to information, two things happen. The first thing that happens is that we believe it to be true by default. We have a presumption that people tell us the truth. And that makes a lot of sense because in our daily lives, we're walking around and doing our shopping, meeting our friends, and 99.99% of the time, whatever people tell us is basically true. So we have developed that expectation that things are true. Now, the second thing that happens is that as I'm listening to information, I'm trying to build what we call a mental model of an event. 
So if you tell me something that is happening, I will incrementally follow what you're saying. I put a story in my head and I develop a model of the situation. Now, if I then say that a key element in that story is wrong, then that's extremely difficult for you to handle because you've just built this edifice in your mind that tells you something about an event. And now all of a sudden I'm telling you, bing, this core element of it is untrue. Now, in that situation, what happens is that people encode the fact that this is untrue. And if I ask them about it, they will say, oh, yeah, you told me that that particular thing is untrue. But even though they know it's untrue, they cannot have a big gaping hole in their mental model now. So they're continuing to rely on the original information when I ask them to draw inferences. So let me give you an example. Perhaps. Yes, I mean, I'm thinking now anti-vaxxers and climate well, skeptics. Exactly. Well, it leads up to that. But before we even get there, yeah. let me give you a simple example. If I tell you a story about a jewelry theft, somebody breaks into a house and you know, steals the jewelry, and I'm, I'm dropping all sorts of hints here that it might have been an inside job, that the parents were on vacation, and the son is a drug addict, and he always needs money, and so maybe it was the son. Now, if I then tell you, no, actually it wasn't, then what I can show in my experiments is that you still rely on that information that it was the son, even though I told you it was false. However, if I tell you, no, it wasn't the son, and we know it wasn't because we've arrested somebody else, the neighbor, then all of a sudden you will say, aha, uh -huh, and you will change your mental model to accommodate that alternative information. Right. So it's like I've imprinted the first story I exactly. heard. Mm, so how do you then rewrite that? Well, that's the key thing. You have to present an alternative. What you have to do is you have to say, instead of just saying, no, it wasn't the son, you have to say, no, it wasn't the son, and we've arrested somebody else. Because the moment that's the case, you still have a coherent mental model of the event, except it has now changed. So when we try to correct people, it is um, always advisable and advantageous if you can present a coherent alternative explanation of the same narrative, the same story. Professor, how did you get into this area? What event sparked your interest in misconceptions in society? Well, it was sparked in 2003 during the invasion of Iraq because I was living here in Australia at the time and I was following the news uh, fairly closely. And one of the things that struck me from day one was how many news reports would appear overnight early in the morning here in Australia. Um, and then a couple of hours later, they were corrected or withdrawn. So there were all these reports about, oh, a potential chemical weapons factory was found in Iraq and we have preliminary tests confirming the presence of chemical weapons, etc., etc., because, of course, the war was fought ostensibly over these weapons of mass destruction, such as chemical weapons. And then none of them were ever found. So what happened on a daily basis was that you got this initial information that a couple hours later turned out to be untrue and was withdrawn. And it said, hey, actually, no, those weren't chemical weapons. It was an oil spill or something. And that fascinated me at the time because I thought, gee, I wonder what happens to people when they're exposed to that much that turns out to be untrue later on. So I ran an experiment together with colleagues where we sort of um, – that was conducted while the initial phase of the war was still ongoing – 
Um, and we conducted that in three different countries, in the United States, in Germany, and in Australia. And what we found was quite, quite fascinating because we found that people who were skeptical about the reasons for the war, who thought that it might not have been fought over weapons of mass destruction, that those people were far more able to differentiate between truth and falsehood compared to people who did believe the official reason for the war. In fact, in our American sample, what we found was that the people who knew that something had been corrected, who were dead certain that this information was false, if we asked them 30 seconds later, later whether they still believed it, their answer was, yes, I still believe it. So we again had this dissociation between knowing that something is false, but that knowledge not actually affecting your belief about the event in question. And that is because people in America at the time predominantly accepted this narrative of weapons of mass destruction and therefore weren't skeptical enough to consider the alternative, which was that the war was about something completely different and that you wouldn't find any weapons of mass destruction. There's some relief in deciding that you know something. For instance, there's a fine line between opinion and knowledge, it seems. Is that true? Absolutely. And it's it's a line that is becoming inc increasingly blurred. And this is one of the uh, concerns I have at the moment in my research where I'm dealing with uh, what, what many people call the post-truth world, the post-truth uh, uh, politics, where it appears to be the case um, that facts no longer matter in some sense. And just to illustrate, I... I uh, I'm giving the talk later this afternoon, and I prepared it this morning by updating the, the latest statistics on Donald Trump. And it turns out that now he is speaking an untruth or something that's misleading at the rate of about six, six times a day. And he's been doing this at an increasing rate. He started out at four pieces of misinformation per day. He's now up to six per day. And he's been doing this ever since he got elected. And, of course, he did it during the election campaign as well. So we have a president who is clearly habitually misstating the truth, misleading, stating untruths uh, at the rate of six a day. And no one fact checks the president? Well, people do fact check the president. But the problem is that it doesn't seem to make a dent in his approval ratings. Because if you look at the long-term trend... In his approval, and I just, again, did this recently because I, you know, I wanted to know. And <laughs> uh, Gallup runs a weekly poll of, of, you know, presidential approval. And what you find is that basically among Republicans, his approval has remained invariant at above 80 percent, sometimes above 90 percent since he became president. And among Democrats, he's down at about 10 percent. Independents are somewhere in the middle. But the striking thing is that there's absolutely no change, no significant trend in his approval among his own partisans. And so it appears as though stating all these untruths doesn't make a difference to a politician's survivability and popularity, at least among his own partisans. And as it turns out, I ran a study last year published a study last year, was actually run during the primary campaign, where we uh, provided experimental evidence for that. What we did there was to 
present an online sample of American voters with statements that Donald Trump had made, uh, half of which were true, half of which were false. Um, we asked for people's belief writings in these statements. Having done that, we then either corrected the statements that were false or we affirmed the statements that were true. Now, when you do that, what happens at first glance was very gratifying because we found that regardless of partisanship, uh, people endorse the true statements more and the false statements less, as you would expect, as you would want people to do after a correction. Now, the problem is that what we also found is that there was no association between the extent to which people change their beliefs and a change in voting intentions or feelings about Donald Trump. So basically what our study showed is you can disabuse people of believing certain statements, but it makes absolutely no difference to their voting intentions. And we've replicated that since then uh, with a um, you know similar but slightly different procedure. Again, found roughly the same thing. Colleagues of ours have replicated the same phenomenon, again, using a slightly different but very similar procedure. So we now have at least three studies showing that among American voters the number of false statements that a politician makes just simply doesn't matter to how they feel about it. Yeah. The only thing that mattered was people's prior identifica uh, identification as a Trump supporter or not. These influencers or persuaders, this has the potential to really sway populations into dangerous areas. And again, I want to bring up climate change and yes. anti-vaxxers, because yes. these are two areas that are pretty much established by science yes. as to having made a difference. Yes. Well, there's no scientific doubt about they, climate change, right. nor is there about no. the safety of vaccinations. That's right. Yeah. They save lives in population exactly. senses. So is there a tipping point we should be looking out for? Well, um, well, we certainly have to be on the lookout for a lot of things. And, and let, me, let, me, let me get back to climate change and vaccinations in a moment. I just want to take a slight detour because um, just over the last week or so, you may know that Cambridge Analytica uh, has turned into a major scandal, which I presume was covered in Australia as well. Um, so basically what happened there is that um, evidence has now become incontrovertible. I think, that Cambridge Analytica was using data harvested off Facebook to send messages to voters in the UK during the Brexit referendum and the US during the last presidential election. Now, what does that mean and why, if at all, should we be concerned about that? And this is where, where I think we have to, we have to be uh, very careful to look at this and we have to be very concerned about it. The reason is that there's published research that tells us that if I have access to 300 of your likes on Facebook, then with a computer program, using a computer program, I can predict your personality better than your own spouse. So... In other words, that's I find right. that frightening. It is exact. Well, it is. It is. It, it has a frightening potential, because it means that whatever we do on Facebook is leaving a fingerprint, a a digital fingerprint of ourselves and our personality and our preferences that can then be known by other people. So we know that access to Facebook data gives us access to a person's personality. Now, 
if those data are then passed on, legally or otherwise, that remains to be seen, to a private corporation that specializes in persuasion, then this offers an opportunity for micro-targeting, which means that they can send out messages that are customized to exploit people's particular vulnerabilities. Whatever makes you vulnerable or susceptible to persuasion on the basis of your most intimate personality aspects, they can target. Now, when you then get those messages, you have no idea that you're being targeted by professional manipulators in that manner. This is mind control. It is basically getting very close to that. Now, it remains to be seen how much of that took place. It remains to be seen how precise the micro-targeting was. It remains to be, you know, there's a lot of things we don't know. But what we do know from the existing research is the potential that we can send messages to Facebook, through Facebook, that are personalized to target you as an individual with all your personality characteristics that are known to this unknown corporation that is targeting you. And you have no idea that that is what's happening. Now, what's worse is that no one else knows what messages you're receiving and how you're being manipulated. And so what we've now done, if this takes place in the political domain, is to completely undermine the whole notion of a democracy, which is based on a free marketplace of ideas, where ideas are being debated, challenged, rebutted, and exchanged. Now, none of that can happen if a political opponent doesn't even know what's being said about them uh, on Facebook in darkness. And so I think what's happening right now is that we have a situation where potentially... The whole idea of a democratic debate is annihilated and negated by these dark ads that no one knows about. And that, to my mind, is an absolutely serious problem. And we should be desperately concerned about that because you cannot have a political debate if half of it isn't even known to the political opponents. How can you have a debate with somebody if that other person is talking to voters and you have no idea what they're saying? All you know is that they're being targeted by some machine that is exploiting their their vulnerabilities. To my mind, that's unacceptable. Democracy works on an informed society, and this is not really being informed. This is being manipulated. Absolutely. And there's a crucial difference between being manipulated in that manner and having a public debate where politicians can still try to manipulate the public. Of course they do. Let's be honest about it. You know, they've been doing this for decades, ever since, you know, day one of democracy. <laughs> you know, politicians aren't innocent. They never have been. And uh, they try their best to, to put a spin on events. But what we've never had before is this escape from scrutiny and from the possibility of rebuttal into this dark underground of having personalized ads that no one else will know even exist. And that, to me, is subverting the idea of democracy, and I think we have to take that very, very seriously. Professor Stephen, what advice do you have for citizen average that makes sense of the world in this knowledge era? Well, I think it's absolutely crucial to to be alert and to give up this idea that we all hold 
um, that people are, are telling us the truth. Now, unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of political operatives out there who are bombarding us with messages on Facebook or Twitter or even in the mainstream media that are, that are plain false. And you mentioned vaccinations and climate change earlier, and that is a, uh, especially climate change, is an absolutely a, a case in point because the discrepancy between the you know, established science and the agreement in the scientific community about this on the one hand and the public's perception of an ongoing debate, I mean, that discrepancy is just absurd. I mean, I do a lot of work in climate science and I attend the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union almost every year and that's attended by 20,000 scientists and it goes for weeks and there's thousands of talks and posters and there never is a debate about whether or not climate change exists or whether we cause it. Not at all, because there's nothing to debate. The physics is 150 years old. We know exactly that we're changing the climate through CO2 emissions, and to say otherwise is scientifically pathetic. And so no one actually does that at a scientific conference where the debate is much more on the details of how this will unfold and how much we have to, how much damages we have to expect and so on. And what we see in public discourse, um, by contrast, especially here in Australia, unfortunately, is, is, um, you know, a, a debate that is drenched in misinformation. And I, I am actually inclined to say disinformation because we know that you know, about a billion dollars is spent every year in the United States on conservative think tanks that are producing various political talking points. And among these talking points is the denial of basic physics, of uh, climate science. And so you have these pseudo-debates that are taking uh, place here in Australia in particular and that are aided and abetted by media organs that are interested either in pursuing an agenda or in stirring up a controversy just to create the appearance of a debate where there in fact is none. So yeah, it's, it's, we have to be very careful as consumers of information where we go and what we believe. Is installing some sort of legality around the ethics of marketing a possible solution for this well, disease almost? Yes. Well, it's certainly a crisis, I think. Um, yes and no. I think I'm inclined to say yes to the idea that we can do something and that uh, we do have the political means and regulatory authority to, to change the information landscape. So I think it's important to realize that we're not helpless. Uh, we are not a victim of Facebook or Twitter. Quite on the contrary, we can actually control them, as Germany, for example, has been demonstrating recently with their new anti-hate speech legislation, which has forced Facebook to hire a large number of moderators who are now working in Germany and stripping hate speech off Facebook content. So it is possible to do this. So let me say yes first, but now I'm going to say, ooh, no, because here's the problem. I'm totally against having a ministry of truth or some other outfit that says, hey, this is ethical to say, and that isn't. Because if we're regulating content 
perhaps we can do that with hate speech. I think, you know, we can in, in incitement to hatred and so forth. We can probably deal with that and come up with a definition of what that might be. And we can perhaps quarantine that and have regulations for that. But generally to determine whether something is true or false by fiat or by diktat, by some authority, to my mind, is extremely dangerous. So I'm, I'm against regulating content. However, what I think we can do is that we can regulate the architecture in which all of this takes place. And that, to me, I've labeled this technocognition. This is something that I proposed in an article I wrote last year. And the idea there is that we look at what makes social media unique from what we had previously and how can we maybe change the architecture to make it more conducive to the emergence of truth as opposed to the proliferation of falsehoods. So how might that work? Well, let me give you one example that's already been done, and it's the uh, my favorite example by the Norwegian state broadcaster, the equivalent of the ABC in, in Norway. What they've done is to institute a policy whereby if you want to leave a comment on a controversial article on their website, before you can do that, what you have to do is to pass a quiz. You have to pass a multiple choice quiz to demonstrate that you actually understood the article. If you fail that quiz, sorry, you can't leave a comment. Now, I think that's a wonderful idea because no one is being censored, right? All that happens is that any reader can leave a comment, but they have to demonstrate that they understood what they read. I love that. Exactly. And then they can comment and they can still say anything they want, perhaps subject to hate crime legislation, you know, that sort of thing. But the point is by just having that architectural little filter in there, uh, you're eliminating bots because they wouldn't know how to do that. You're eliminating people who can't be bothered to actually read and understand the article. And even the people who do understand, you're forcing them to cool down because it takes a certain amount of time before you get around to posting your comment. And if you have a serious comment to make, well, then hopefully 30 seconds later after you've taken the quiz, your blood pressure is down to the point where you might say something you won't later on regret. So that is just one example of um, how we can deal with the information architecture to improve the quality of discourse without any, any overt censorship. Professor Stephen, give us some advice. What do you want us to think about next time we see a Facebook ad that we feel a little sus about? Well, I would, I would say check it out. Where did it come from? Go to Snopes.com and, and see if they've debunked it. I think they're a very reliable website. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, Snopes is, is perhaps one of the better ones. Uh, but there are websites out there that tell you how to read the media critically and how to analyze sources. Now, now here's, here's a word of caution about that. And this is going back to the whole idea of, democracy and what does it mean to have a democracy and, and, and how can we preserve it? One of the dangers I see in all this, and I actually have data to suggest that, one of the dangers is that this constant exposure to misinformation is making people cynical about the very existence of the notion of truth. And if you go back in history and if you look at the writing of Hannah Arendt, for example, who's one of the you know, preeminent philosophers and, and analysts of Nazi Germany and, and 
um, who's, who's made some amazing contributions to understanding fascism. One, one of her big points was that the point of lying in politics isn't necessarily the lie itself, but it is the creation in the extreme case of an environment where lies have become so commonplace that the population is giving up on the notion of truth to begin with. And I think if we have a president who's lying six times a day um, and where, where he has a press secretary who actually very blatantly is talking about, oh, alternative facts, we are having alternative facts. Well, if you talk about a world like that, then clearly we're not talking about a world where, where the lie is just sort of serving a purpose. This is a systematic... Uh, campaign, I think, to erode the notion of truth. And if we look at history, and, and we trust Hannah Arendt, as I very much do, then um, that is a precursor to totalitarianism and authoritarianism, because truth is something that keeps the powerful in check. So if you undo the concept of truth, then all you have left are people in power who are just lying the loudest and who can do what they want. So I think it's absolutely crucial to maintain the idea that certain things are true and other things are lies. And so we have to maintain that distinction. And in order to maintain the distinction, however, we also must believe certain things. We cannot just throw up our hands and say, oh, I don't know what truth is. Everybody is lying to me. Therefore, nothing is true. Well, actually, that's not the case. Climate scientists are not lying to you. They are publishing peer-reviewed science telling us that climate change is real. The same for the medical research community telling us about vaccinations. They're not lying to us. They're doing science. And the same is true for many, many other situations where it is actually possible to do a careful analysis and to figure out what's true and what's false. And we must maintain that distinction. We can't just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, who cares? I can believe whatever I want. Professor Stephen Lewandowski... Thank you for holding power to account and thank you for your amazing insights and truths. Okay, thanks so much. Been a pleasure. Thanks to Professor Stephen Lewandowski, cognitive scientist and chair of cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on March 26, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by yours truly. Co-production by Dr. Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.